0: And welcome to another edition of the Pactum. I'm Mike Grimes here today with Pat Abendroth. Hey, Mike, I'm over here. You are over there. And we
1: second cup of coffee in the office anyway. You do over this morning. We're out of Pete's at my house. So there's going to be fighting between my wife and myself. uh, But the shipment (laughs) comes tomorrow. So thankfully, thankfully, Pete sponsors the Pactum as well as the Abendroth home.
0: What do you what do you drink when you don't have Pete's? I've got some.
1: Oh, Starbucks has some new instant. And we got some hate last time when I mentioned what? that I drink Starbucks. Uh, I just want you to know that I normally don't drink Starbucks, but it is better than some other brands. It's true. But they have a new instant one that's super funky in a little tin can. Huh. And, uh, it's it's not your grandmother's instant coffee. Uh, so that's like taking that an old school the, the it, '90s. It, it's actually pretty good. I think it's basically the same as the little VIA packets, okay. which are awesome for traveling. Uh, Starbucks should sponsor us for that, at least for our traveling show. <laughs> but I think it's like that, but it doesn't come in the little. Um, Little packs. It comes just in a little tin can. So I think that's going to get us through tomorrow morning before Mark the UPS man comes. Uh, We're tight. So thankfully, he's bringing me a couple of new tires for my road bike. Oh, there you go. Yep. You're going to be
0: at the end of the driveway waiting for Mark. I I am. Although
1: the other day, Ozzie, Ozzie the dog was out there, and so I couldn't figure out why there was a box at the end of the driveway. And it's because the FedEx guy saw the dog, Ferocious Ozzy, who like seven dog. pounds, uh, left the box at the end of the driveway just to kind of let us know that he's afraid of Ozzy. So, speaking of tires for your bike, how'd your ride go last night? Ooh, it was hard last night when my heart rate was 189 going up the big hill. So, the question um, is, did you beat everybody? Let's move on and talk about today's topic. <laughs> so let me just say that pride goes before the fall. And uh, I don't know. I told them I rode my gravel bike this time on a road ride. Maybe next week I need to ride my fat bike on the road ride. Ooh. So pride goes before the fall. Since we are going to be talking about Calvinism today and total depravity, you go. I guess I'm living proof uh, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and pride is a terrible sin. And I'm feeling very prideful today um, after the big ride last night. Perfect segue to this. (laughs) Absolutely perfect or not. (laughs) So today we are going to be be talking about the so-called five points of Calvinism. And we'll talk about why we'll call them the so-called five points later. Uh, We're going to call the episode Questioning Calvinism just to kind of bait people yeah. uh, or maybe trigger people. I'm not sure. But before we get into talking about the five points of Calvinism, uh, we do have a new feature. The Pactum has a new feature yes. coming up. So, Mike, you want to talk about that a yeah, little bit? Yeah, we're
0: going to start off a new feature called the Pactum Responsum. Hmm. Yes, the Pactum Responsum. The
1: pactum Responsum. Yes. Okay,
0: tell me more. I'm so intrigued. We would like for our listeners to submit your questions Uh, theology, doctrine, maybe questions about an episode we've had already. Church ministry, pastoral ministry. Anything you want to ask, Pat has the answers for all of your questions. And so we're (laughs) going to have the Pactum responsum, and what we want you to do is submit those questions to us on email. You can send them to connect at thepactum.org. And we can't promise that we'll get to every question, but upcoming soon we will start answering some of these questions, whether it be in just a, a episode here and there, or in a full episode, we're going to answer your questions. So the Pactum Responsum, send us an email, connect at thepactum.org.
1: It kind of sounds like mailbag or question and answer, but yeah. I'm sure it's far more sophisticated because it it's called the Pactum Responsum. Right, it's all Latin, it's all so, good. So I'm thankful for that. <laughs> Now, if you want to submit a question uh, and you're just trying to be that person, um, just know that if it doesn't pass the pactum sniff test, yeah. um, it's gonna be disregarded. So, yeah. no, no funny business. <laughs> Okay, let's jump in. We have five questions today about Calvinism. So five questions about the five points of so-called Calvinism, and we're going to get right into things with question number one when we're questioning Calvinism. Number one is what are the so-called five points of Calvinism, and this is where we cue
0: Tiptoe through the tulips. <laughs> Mike should have brought the ukulele. I know ukulele. I should have brought the ukulele today. What a bummer.
1: Uh huh. When I first met Mike, I asked him what instruments he couldn't play, and he didn't have an answer. Oh, I do have. An so, for that. Uh, uh, well, now that he's on staff, <laughs> he, he, he admits to not being able to play certain things. So, <laughs> more examples of total depravity, I suppose. Yes,
0: absolutely.
1: But if Tiny Tim uh, could play our theme song, we'd be talking about tiptoeing through the tulips. Yes. Because of the ac- acr- acrostic. Uh, Uh, Tulip, total depravity, point number one, number two, unconditional election, the U, number three, limited atonement, the L, number four, irresistible grace, the I, number five, perseverance of the saints, the P. And so when people talk about the five points of Calvinism, oftentimes anyway, they talk about the tulip. And so we will talk about each of those in just a little while, Uh, but for now, uh, those of you who are newer to Christianity, newer to the Christian faith, newer to theological controversies, we do say that the Calvinist has the tulip flower yes, uh, and the Armenian has the daisy. daisy because he loves me, he loves me not, he <laughs> loves me, he loves me not he loves me, he loves me not. So Mm -hmm. if you've been a Christian for very long, you knew where we were going with that, but we have to be inclusive. We have to bring people along. And so we want them to understand, uh, tulips are the Calvinist flower. I am thankful that my wife loves tulips. Mm. Uh, I'm thankful to be married to a Calvinist, a five point Calvinist, Mm -hmm. uh, a black coffee. Oh no, she's not quite there. Uh, she is a five point Calvinist, but she doesn't, drink black coffee yet so Hmm. i think uh, i have this whole theology of coffee and calvinism so you start out you don't like coffee it just seems bad to you and then maybe somewhere along the line someone convinces you to try coffee ice cream And so maybe now you're thinking that perhaps the Bible does talk about people being sinful, maybe (laughs) even (laughs) unable to save themselves. And, you know, it just moves forward. And then you have a Frappuccino and maybe now you start to think, well, the Bible does talk about predestination. I'm not really sure where I am with that. You see where all this is going. Then you go coffee with cream and sugar and then you back out some of the cream, maybe. But eventually Eventually, eventually, you, you drink black coffee. You take black coffee, yeah. and so yep. for those of you who are Armenian and your coffee drinking still, <laughs> just know uh, that God is mighty to save. <laughs> 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 as you can tell, Mike, I've had too much black coffee
0: today. That's all right. And we're really getting this That's going. All right. Well, sometimes when we talk about Calvinism, we refer to it as the doctrines of grace. That might be something that you, our listeners, have heard of before, often referring to Calvinism. And it's a way of thinking about how God saves, how God redeems his people.
1: It's- good, good. Yep, absolutely. Now, also, in addition to that, sometimes uh, people use the Calvinist label just to talk about the sovereignty of God. Yeah, and we're not really talking about that this morning. We're in in particular talking this morning, today. It's not even morning where I am. <laughs> you might be listening in the morning. You might be listening at night. It's not even morning, and I'm saying this morning. Maybe it's because I'm in church and I'm used to preaching in yep. church. Yeah, that's it. Oh, I told people where we are <laughs> in our secret bunker. bunker. Uh, we're under the church in the church basement, uh, <laughs> where. All the crazy stuff happens. In our new members classes, I like to tell people we're going to take a tour of the basement. That's funny. We don't have a basement, so that's where (laughs) we do all the snake handling and all things like that. (laughs) So we're talking about the five points that deal with, as you said, Mike, salvation, God, human beings, and how that works. We're not talking about the sovereignty of God. But why, why do you suppose people, when, when they're promoting the sovereignty of God, that God causes all things to work together for good, those kinds of statements, why do they refer to people who s- talk like
0: that as Calvinists? Probably because of their thinking, you know, when we're thinking of God being sovereign, uh, we're thinking about election, we're thinking about predestination, and those are Calvinistic uh, labels and terms, and so they're going to... Tend towards that when they're just thinking about God's sovereignty and that he's sovereign in the way that he chooses and saves a people. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. I have a friend who was uh, meeting with some pastors who
1: were uh, not just left-leaning. They would be very theologically to the left, and he was talking to them about religion. They were on the campus where he teaches, I think— And he told them that he believes uh, that you know in the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus, and that's what his church teaches. And they said, "Oh, you're a Calvinist." (laughs) So I thought that was kind of intriguing to me. So I was just happy that he told them what he told them. Huh? That's interesting.
0: Well, let's move into uh, one of our second. Uh, Five of the five questions questioning Calvinism. Second question is, what is the biblical basis for Calvinism? And I think this is a good question, because a lot of times when we talk about Calvinism, we hear people say, I'm a Calvinist. Well, they're just adhering to maybe these five points they've heard at some point. And you say, is that in the Bible? What's the biblical basis? For? So let's talk through that a little bit. What's the biblical basis for Calvinism?
1: Okay, let's begin with the first one, total depravity. And every thoughtful theologian who is a Calvinist would say, let's call it total inability instead of total depravity yeah. or radical depravity, but that doesn't fit the acrostic. Right. It's not that people are as bad as they could be. Uh, but people cannot be saved apart from God doing the saving. So yeah. when we say total depravity, we realize Hitler could have been worse than he was. Yeah. Stalin could have been worse than he was. Mike Grimes... Could be worse than he is. Yes, uh, but the fact is, we're talking about you're not able. You're not able to save yourself. God has to save you, Right. and we do find this all over Scripture. But we'll start with a great, helpful one, and that is Ephesians chapter two. In Ephesians chapter two, verse one, it says, "You are dead and in the trespasses and sins." So spiritual deadness, he goes on to talk about how we're actually not dead, uh, but it's spiritual deadness. In verse 3 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, it says, uh, we all, so it's universal, not just the real bad actors, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature, so this is according to our nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So it's universal, this total depravity, this radical inability. And then the answer, we we know it's total and complete because there's only one way to get this solved, and that is in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So who makes us alive? It's not a partnership between us and God because we are totally unable, incapable, and so God himself makes sinners alive.
0: Yeah. The confession when it's talking about this inability of man to save himself, the London Baptist Confession says, man has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto.
1: Perfect. Romans 3 would be another good text. None righteous, no, not one, quoting the Old Testament. So it's old, it's trans-testamental. Trans-testament. Old Testament, New Testament. So... We, we, we need help, and we don't just need help. We need saving. So radical depravity, total depravity.
0: And if you can understand this one, I think all of the rest come naturally. They really do. You know, I've heard discussions on Calvinism, discussions on getting even thinking about election And it all really starts to make sense if you can hone in on total depravity. Things start to really click from there. It's really important that you start there.
1: Then we come to number two, unconditional election, which sounds like a mouthful if you're not really understanding why uh, we would frame it this way. Unconditional election because the Bible teaches election. It teaches predestination. Ephesians chapter one would just be one good place to go to. Romans eight would be another one. Uh, But people who are non-Calvinists, people who are Arminians, um, believe in election because it's in the Bible. Now, strangely, lots of people don't because they don't know what's in the Bible. (laughs) But the words are there. So unconditional election would be referring to the fact that it's not that God... Elects based upon something that we do. no, it's based upon something that's not conditioned upon anything he foresees or anything that uh, that we do first. Uh, It has nothing to do with us whatsoever, actually, because God elects God predestines those who are dead in trespasses and sins. And so it's not conditioned upon some little glimmer of light that God, a spark of hope that God sees in us.
0: He looks through the corridor of time and sees, right? Yeah,
1: it's it's not biblical because if God looked in the corridor of time to see ahead, he would see... Spiritually dead people. Right. So he's going to elect unto salvation. He's going to predestine uh, unto salvation uh, based upon his own good pleasure, right. based upon his own will, yeah. which is a mystery to us when we're really getting right down to it. Uh, but it's unconditional election, not conditioned upon something foreknown or foreseen in us. Yeah. So when it comes to proving it biblically, we're going to take the predestination passages and the election passages like in Ephesians 1, Romans chapter 8, and read those in light of Ephesians chapter 2. Right. And so perhaps if we took them uh, nakedly or nakedly (laughs) on their own, uh, then we'd say, well, we're not sure, but we actually can be sure in light of the depravity of human beings. Right. Absolutely. Moving on to number three, the L, a limited atonement. Uh, this seems to be the last one to go
0: for people. This is where the black coffee comes. This
1: right is here. where the black, co- black coffee comes. You
0: lose the sugar and the cream
1: years ago. I heard RC Sproul. I have not been able to re to, to find it. If any of our listeners can find it, we'll send you some Pactum stickers, uh, and such, uh, because those are super valuable, uh, street market value. I, I mean, it's just amazing. So if you can find the audio, I would love to hear it. But R.C. Sproul, uh, in a way that only he could, I won't try to imitate him, but he welcomes everyone. And he said, I hear there are some four-point Calvinists here among us at the conference. And I just want to welcome all of you four-point Calvinists and all the rest of you Arminians. (laughs) 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 It was was awesome. That's funny. (laughs) I think I was with people who were offended at the whole thing. So... Anyway, uh, limited atonement seems to be the hardest one for people to, yeah, yeah. to to embrace, and and I understand that. I think I was unlimited, limited, and then unlimited again. So thank thankfully, God is gracious, gracious and merciful. But limited atonement—it sounds so limiting and negative. Right. Once yeah. again, it fits the acrostic. Uh, I would prefer to say particular redemption, yeah. as others have. We're talking about the fact that Jesus doesn't make people savable. Uh, He doesn't make people redeemable. Um, He saves. He redeems. It's not a potential atonement. No, he actually made atonement. Right.
0: Something actually took place on the cross when Jesus died for sinners. Yes. And if it's a substitutionary
1: atonement, and typically and classically, Arminians are going to have a hard time with substitutionary atonement. Yeah. If it's substitutionary atonement, well, that would be very Calvinistic because he's dying in place of actual sinners who will actually have their sins atoned for and who will actually be redeemed. And so particular redemption, uh, atoning atonement. Uh, atonement. (laughs) So a good text when it comes to this, I think one of my favorites, there are others, but this is a to the point podcast episode questioning Calvinism. Uh, John chapter 10 is very helpful. It really is to the point. He says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Hmm. Now, okay, there we have substitution for sure. The question would be then who are the sheep? If we keep reading and drop down a little bit in John chapter 10, verse 26, he says, You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So there are those who are not among his sheep. Not everyone is a sheep. Mm -hmm. And then verse 27 says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Verse 28 I give them, his sheep, eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Hmm. And I say, Hallelujah, what a savior. Uh, Actual atonement, those he lays his life down for are his sheep. And he gives them, his sheep, eternal life, and they will never perish. If Jesus considers all who have ever lived, including Pharaoh, uh, one of his sheep, then Pharaoh most most certainly will be saved because of the substitutionary work. But the the reality is not that reality. Um, And so there are a particular people who Christ does his saving work
0: for. Right. Yep. Any questions? Any pushback? What do you think, Mike? I think the only pushback that I ever hear about limited atonement, and maybe I just don't hear much, but the pushback I hear is that it just doesn't seem very loving. It doesn't seem like it gives everyone an opportunity uh, to be saved.
1: It's really good pushback, and it takes us back to T, total inability. If everyone is a sinner, none righteous, no, not one, it comes back to the fairness matter because it is a, a good point of question. Everyone deserves condemnation. Yes. And so if Jesus chose, he didn't, but if he chose to be a substitute for one sheep, he would be gracious and merciful. Yeah. And the angels in heaven would praise him for being gracious and merciful. Uh, If he chose to give him, give his life for none, uh, he would be just and righteous and they would praise him for that. But the fact that he saves and he saves many countless to the human eye. Um, causes us to say, indeed, he's a, he's a gracious Savior. We're going to get to objections later, so I don't know what you're doing, getting ahead of us, well, Mike.
0: I mean, you asked for pushback. right? It's
1: true. I guess I did. Sorry, that's <laughs> no, my fault. Let's move to the let's move to the fourth one: irresistible grace. God extends His saving grace, not His common grace, but His saving grace uh, to the elect, those who've been chosen before the foundation of the world, and they will believe, they will respond in faith, and they right. therefore they will be saved. And so when God extends his saving grace, it's, it's not like we're dead in trespasses and sins and God makes us alive, but we resist. It's not like we're going to say, why did you do that? Right. Why did you yeah. give me something good? Why did you give me new life? Right. Uh, we're dead in a horrible spot none unrighteous. No, not one. He makes us alive, but it's true. You, you wouldn't be able to resist that. I do like Acts Acts thirteen forty eight that says that all who were appointed unto eternal life believed, mm-hmm. And so we do see those who are predestined, those who are elect, those who are appointed unto eternal life they they do believe now we know they believe because God has made them alive, right but it's true it, it can't be resisted, but who in the world would want to? resist. Life-giving, transforming, saving grace. I suppose in our sort of hypersensitive culture, when we hear something like irresistible grace, uh, it maybe would sound like it's abusive or something like that, which it
0: certainly is not. Any insights on that, Mike? Well, confessionally speaking, uh, in chapter 10.1 of the London Baptist Confession, it says, God takes away their heart of stone and giving unto them heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace.
1: Awesome. Great. Which brings us to the fifth point of the so-called five points of Calvinism, which would be perseverance of the saints. Mm-hmm. So this would be the fact that if you are truly a believer, you will persevere till the end. You, right. If you believe, you will continue believing it doesn't mean there aren't ups and downs. It doesn't mean there aren't difficulties. But Philippians 1.6, for example, says that God who began a good work yes. in you... Yeah. We'll be faithful to complete it. And so some have liked to say it's, a, it's the perseverance of God. Mm-hmm. And I would want to argue that both, both sides of that, sure. because it's true, God works and keeps working, but it's not like we don't keep persevering. Right, yeah. So God doesn't persevere for us. I think that's an overstatement, but certainly he works in and through us according to his good pleasure and his good will.
0: Yeah. So what about then those who profess Christ and don't persevere?
1: It's super important that we have a category for that because lots of evangelicals don't. And I have a category for that. I'll say there is such a thing as a false profession of faith. Um, There are false believers or so-called believers, I guess. Mm -hmm. First John chapter two, verse 19 is insightful. It says something along the lines of those who went out from us were never really of us. Yeah. So we do, we do need to have a category for such people. As we wrap some of this together, before we move on to our third question, a great way to wrap up would be the sweet and profound words of Jesus, the Calvinist. (laughs) I remember James Montgomery Boyce years ago had a a sermon that he preached, you know, Jesus was a Calvinist or something like (laughs) that. Uh, I guess when you're James Montgomery Boyce and have that voice and that um, gentlemanly demeanor, you can do it a little more gutsy than I'm going to do. But these sweet words from Jesus, where it says in John chapter six, beginning in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the father gives me think predestination, think orchestration, sovereignly, all that the father gives me will come to me Mm. and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out Mm. for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of whom that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So given to him by the father, he will lose none of those. And the Bible doesn't teach universalism. He will lose none of them and they will be raised up on the last day. Verse 40 says, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. That's great. Certainty, certitude. It's going to happen. Atonement that atones, resurrection that resurrects, substitution that is effectual. Yeah. So, Mike, now you've been ever so patient with some of your objections. Uh, You're quite objectionable today, I (laughs) guess. We come to number three. What are uh, our third question regarding so-called Calvinism, the five points? What are some misconceptions about Calvinism?
0: Well... First off, what in the world was John Calvin thinking when he thought, you know what, I'm going to come up with these five points and I'm going to name them after myself. What and indeed? What, what's going on there? What indeed
1: was John Calvin thinking in Geneva? Uh, maybe it was just the thin air. I don't know if the air is thin in Geneva or not. It's cold in the winter. Yeah. The one time I was there, I was freezing cold. That does remind me. I so I am an authority on all things you Calvin are, because absolutely. I've been to Geneva. What you say is funny, Mike. There are people who actually think that John Calvin came up with the five points of Calvinism. Yeah. It's. I mean, if. I don't I don't even recommend looking on the internet no. for Calvinism and objections
0: no, uh-uh. because
1: it is so filled with the goofiest goofball ism yeah. than perhaps anywhere else. Yeah. I, I don't know. People who believe in UFOs or, or or do we are we supposed to believe in them now? We're supposed to believe in them now, uh, okay. yeah, for sure. But <laughs> okay. So I, I mean the, the anti-Calvinist crew by and large are really, really something. Yeah. Uh <laughs> it's It's bizarre, so the five points of calvinism the fact is uh, Calvin did not come up with them right um, his followers didn't come up with them, mm-hmm. so as a matter of fact, historically speaking, the followers of Arminius came up with the five points, and they were opposing. What had been, what had become settled doctrine when it comes to reformed theology. Mm -hmm. And so it would be Arminians, uh, Arminius's followers who came up with the five points and they were trying to sneak in their false doctrine as a matter of fact, Mm -hmm. and to have it be acceptable. So as Robert Godfrey, the historian who I respect and appreciate a lot would say the five, the so-called five points of Calvinism are actually the five answers to the five errors of Arminianism. Yeah. So that's why we've called the episode questioning Calvinism in one sense. It's why we we've been saying so-called five points of Calvinism, the five answers to the five errors of Arminianism. Yeah. In the lecture that I listened to from Godfrey, and we can put a link to it in the show notes, it's quite helpful. He refers to the response, the response at the Synod of Dort uh, as a bulwark erected to save the Reformation. Hmm. So the five answers uh, are super important. The, the five points of Calvinism, as we call them right. in responding to the five errors of Arminianism, uh, were were designed the pushback is designed to save the reformation mm. so it actually is super important and so we're not trying to to downplay when we anything when we say so-called uh, but let's just know who started this whole thing and it would be uh, the arminians yeah any other let's talk about some other objections
0: mike yeah one might be that you know people don't like labels don't call me that uh you know i'm not a calvinist i'm not an arminian uh, I just believe what the Bible teaches, so leave me alone. Don't call me that. Don't put me in that box.
1: I can appreciate that. I can appreciate people saying, well, I'm just a biblicist, <laughs> which is why episode number one of the Pactum yes. was on biblicism. Absolutely. So labels can be bad. Labels can be good. We use them to kind of cut to the chase. Uh, but the the reality is everyone is either a Calvinist or an Arminian in one way, shape, or form. Maybe there's a blending of the two, but we're using labels that, that have to do with historical theology. And so once we find out what you believe about the atonement, we we can say, oh, you you hold to an Arminian view of the atonement, uh, or something like that. Or you're you're Calvinistic in your thinking when it comes to the atonement. But everyone is something, even if we don't know what we are. Uh, There was a church in town not too long ago that in their doctrinal statement, they said, we are neither Calvinist nor Armenian. (laughs) And so... (laughs) So, I was glad that they let us know that they weren 't racist um, because we 're not talking about armenianism yeah. uh, we we 're talking about Armenianism, yes. so those pesky word processors and they 're yes. changing and, things yeah. I suppose yeah. so but in reality, that church is uh, one or the other or a blending of the two, but you can 't just say we 're neither because it 's historically theologically uh, actually inaccurate
0: yeah well maybe another uh, misconception or so Mike, put- Mike, 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 what do you say to people when they say, are you a Calvinist? I say, yes. You do? I do.
1: I do. Uh, I'm, I'm more, maybe more political in my approach. I say, well, what do you mean by that? It depends on who they are. Yeah, but I true. appreciate the fact that you can drink Coke Zero with orange, orange vanilla orange marmalade <laughs> van-
0: vanilla and,
1: and just answer, I'm comfortable answer, with it. it's answer right. straight up. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. I'm, I'm glad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe <laughs> another misconception or pushback uh, you might get with Calvinism uh, is that it kills evangelism and it's you know kind of just fatalistic. It's, you know what, we don't need to evangelize because if God has elect and chosen a people to save and Christ has come to complete that work, then... Well, if they're going to be saved, they're going to be saved. We can just sit back, maybe twiddle our thumbs, and God's going to do the work. So what's the pushback, or what is the response to that pushback That would be an
1: awful thing if we didn't obey what the Lord commands us to do. And he commands us to preach Christ to all people Mm -hmm. uh, and to make disciples of all nations. And God uses the preaching of his word uh, to bring about the new birth. So faith comes by, or even to bring about faith. And so faith comes by hearing uh, and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, if you're a hyper-Calvinist, which has been a problem at times, but that's different than Calvinism. But if you're a hyper-Calvinist, you'd think that way. So I think of someone like William Carey, who was coming from a context of uh, those d- who didn't want him to take the gospel to India yeah. from England, and he was opposing hyper-Calvinists because he himself was a five-point Calvinist, mm. but committed to going and evangelizing people because God uses the proclamation of his word. I would also go to passages like we, the one we referenced earlier in Acts chapter 13, all those who were appointed unto eternal life believed. So that just throws fuel on my evangelistic fervor. I want Mm -hmm. to preach Christ knowing I can't convert people, but I do know that if I preach Christ, those who were appointed unto eternal life uh, will believe. And so that's why great evangelists, some of the greatest evangelists ever in history, people like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, lots of our listeners would know, was a five-point Calvinist. uh, And yet it actually fueled his fire and his fervor. And he wouldn't be the only one, but he's one that we can mention. Speaking of hyper-Calvinism, before we move on to other objections, it's probably a good time to talk about uh, the fact that some people think that somehow God believes for you Mm. and that you don't have to call people to faith. Uh, I've heard that very objection from people. Uh, They don't want us to say to people, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Mm. To them, that sounds Arminian. And that seems to be an overreaction to Arminianism because the reality is the Bible says, believe in the Lord right, Jesus right. and you will be saved. Right.
0: There's a general and call.
1: that we Great. We yeah. offer the general call, yeah. uh, knowing that God offers the effectual right, call. Right, yeah. So it's actually important that we do call people to believe in Jesus, knowing full well that they can't and won't, apart from the Holy Spirit's right, right. sovereign work, but... We don't want to be hyper-Calvinists, and sometimes brand-new Calvinists think this way. If they only read Romans 9, mm. uh, there are other mm-hmm. texts to read. We, should read. we should read Romans 9, but we should read other texts as well. Yeah. So sinners believe and need to believe. Uh, God doesn't believe for you, right. but he does uh, bring about the new, new birth, which enables saving faith, which is a gift. But sinners do need to believe, and that's classic Calvinism.
0: Maybe one final pushback uh, you hear sometimes is that, you know, Calvinists are a bunch of jerks. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you looking at me, Mike? I, I, well, I'll, I'm just looking for you to answer that.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, the, the reality is that lots of different kinds of people from lots of di- different theological backgrounds are jerks. Um, sometimes we're jerks. Yeah. That's just how it is. Yeah. Um, of all people, a... Bible-believing, Calvinistic person, and we're repeating ourselves, uh, we should be kind and gracious and merciful yeah. because we understand that we don't deserve anything, that right. God didn't foresee something good in us. Of all people, Calvinists should be the humble ones. Uh may not always be the case. Sometimes it's because Calvinists are so bold and courageous. Sometimes they're still in the cage phase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, sort of like who hates smoking the most? Ex-smokers. Ex-smokers. Right. Sometimes people who have imbibed deep and long at the well of our minionism. Mm. Uh, they they despise it and they they become rather jerky, I yeah. suppose we yeah. could say. So let's not be those people. Um, let's have that be the exception to the rule and maybe look to some people who are more mature. Mm. Um, one of the kindest Calvinists I've ever heard from would be Jerry Bridges. Yeah. And so if you're looking for a kind Calvinist, <laughs> um, look to Jerry Bridges. He's a good example. But there are plenty of others Uh, And I'm grateful for them. I'm even mindful of the fact that when I was a newer Christian, growing, wanting to be in leadership and things like that, I said something, uh, I quoted some slogan of pop evangelicalism like God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Mm. And a sweet little old lady uh, took me aside in a good, thoughtful way and took me to Psalm chapter five, I think it was which pretty much indicates that God hates the sinner as well. Mm. (laughs) So uh, there was a kind Calvinist uh, woman who was helping me to think more biblically. And we would want to nuance that there's a sense in which God hates sinners. That would be true. There's also a sense in which God loves sinners. That would also be true. But she was a Calvinist, and I'm thankful for um, her working in my life effectually. Not really effectually, but
0: tongue in cheek. (laughs) Well, let's move on to our fourth question uh, as we're questioning Calvinism on the Pactum today, working through five questions. And number four, is Calvinism enough? Enough for what? Is it enough? Can we just believe Calvinism and... That's it. Science field
1: delivered. We just have to pray the prayer and ask Calvin into our heart. And that's all we need? We should probably edit that out because someone is going to totally misunderstand. I I was just joking. So it's not enough because there are lots of other things in the Bible that are really important, and the five points are answering specific objections. Right. And so, of course, it's beyond just soteriology. It's just beyond those five points, which actually are really important. But when it comes to being a Christian, we need to have a good and clear and biblical doctrine of God and Christology and view of church, ecclesiology. There's so much more. And I'm at a place even right now, I'm finding that while Omaha Bible Church attracts a fair number of Calvinists, Mm -hmm. and I'm really grateful for them. Oftentimes they're coming and they don't understand, for example, biblical theology,
0: Yes, uh, yeah. how,
1: how, the unfo- how the drama of redemption unfolds throughout Old Testament, New Testament, how the Bible fits together, yeah. the Christ-centered nature of the Bible, things like covenant theology, things yeah. like the distinction between law and gospel— And they can be rather confused, and it's because there are plenty of five-point Calvinists. I think there's one man who calls himself a six- or seven-point Calvinist Hmm. who is a famous preacher who is very, very confused about, let's say, the doctrine of justification because he doesn't hold to the law-gospel distinction. Hmm. So I love it that we're having uh, plenty of Arminians and Calvinists coming to the church because they're coming to the right place, I think, in my humble estimation. But just because they say, oh, yeah, I believe in Calvinism or I'm reformed uh, doesn't mean that we don't need to help them because there's a whole lot more involved, even as it would relate to things like soteriology. Right. Right. Yeah. I did find it interesting that in the Godfrey lecture that we can uh, link to in our show notes, if I didn't already say that, uh, he talks about Calvinism being, if you want to learn Calvinism, don't go to the five points, and you don't even go to the Synod of Dort, even though that's where that controversy was mm-hmm. um, being addressed. He would say, if you want to learn what Calvinism is, you'd turn to something like the Westminster Confession or the Belgic confession, because then you're getting the, the full orb doctrine that relates to other right. things right. also, not just the, the five objection points. Right.
0: So, Pat, maybe as we wrap things up on this episode, our fifth question in questioning Calvinism is, where would we go to learn, and where's a good place to go to learn more about Calvinism? Because you've already mentioned you don't want to go to the internet and Google search Calvinism. To find out what it is, to learn more about it, because there is a whole host of crazy stuff out there. Well, I think people probably should turn to me, yeah. uh,
1: because I have been to Geneva, and yeah. I myself have stood in John Calvin's pulpit. You're the sole authority. It's true, it's true. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I've, I've imbibed in Calvinism. Uh, and so I think I, I, I mean, I've, I've been there, done that. I've got the magnet for the fridge. Um, <laughs> it goes, down. my wife has been there on her own. So proving her true allegiance. There you go. So we have a very uh, Calvinistic home that we, we run and, um, <laughs> Oh brother! If you want to learn more about Calvinism, the internet is a fine place. Uh, just know that there's anything and everything. Yeah. So is. I would just be a little bit more discerning than just listening to every uh, Yahoo that comes along. Right. Spoken from the vantage point of a Yahoo coming along, <laughs> uh, but a good place to go would be uh, look at the canons of Dort. So the Synod of Dort, which would be where the reformers are responding to the arminians so that would be a it's it's not hard to read it's rather interesting i i recommend reading the canons of dort uh, about the synod of dort mm-hmm. uh, i would also recommend someone who's thoughtful and educated about such matters uh someone like rc Sproul. his book chosen by god is a gem Yeah, it's simple it's to the point it has cool chapter names like double double toil and trouble
0: <laughs> like only
1: rc would do yep I would also point people to the confessions, Protestant confessions, because they're surprisingly strong, but they're also surprisingly well-balanced. Sometimes when, again, I hear the brand new caged Calvinist and they sound like hyper-Calvinists and they don't mean to, but they do. And it's probably because they haven't learned some of what they know from the, the nuancing and the thoughtfulness and the balance of something like a Westminster confession, right? or a 1689 London Baptist Confession, or something like that, yeah. it's it's eye-opening to see how careful and how carefully worded things are. Yes. So is. we yeah. would commend those to you. I think J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, is worth its weight in gold, mm. and so that would be another good one.
0: Well, we'll make sure to link to those resources that are recommended. And as we close things out, just a reminder that we are looking for your questions. The Pactum Responsum. We like your questions, maybe questions about an episode we've already done or something you've been wondering about. Send those in to us. Email us at connect at thepactum.org, and we'll utilize those in a later episode. And we can't promise we'll get to all of them, but we welcome your questions. The Pactum Responsum. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time on The Pactum.